All right, you can turn in your Bibles, Proverbs 5. After the sermon last week, um, Dan said, you know it's going to be interesting when the sermon starts with, well, I know there's a lot of kids that are in the room, but we're going to try to be careful with the way we handle a hard text. And so it is, you know, honestly, it's, it's a little nerve-wracking for me to try to speak to four-year-olds and 80-year-olds on a difficult subject, but, you know, we're going to try to deal with a text today and deal with it with fidelity, a way that honors the text, and hopefully in a way that, um, you know, understands the nature of the audience. So last week we started thinking about the nature of sexual temptation. We saw that sexual temptation comes from the heart, as Jesus really clearly taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that to lust after a woman in the heart is to actually commit adultery. So, as Solomon warns his son to walk in purity and holiness, we saw that these words of flattery, these words of fantasy, these words of unbridled pleasure, these words of kind of consequence-free opportunity are dangerous because they actually play on something that resides in our hearts. So, recognizing then sort of the the pull for flattery, um, again, of fantasy. Solomon recognizes this, and he warns his son not to go even near the temptation, not to even go near circumstances that will put him in temptation. Don't even go on her path. And of course, in Proverbs chapter 5, her is this, this adulterous woman who speaks these seductive words. And we said last week that the reason it's a seductive woman and not a, not a man is because This is a father talking to his son about what to avoid. And so he's saying, avoid the adulterous woman. So the ultimate end, Solomon warned, and we saw this again last week. If you didn't have time, or if you weren't here last week, you can go listen to the sermon online. Maybe it'll sort of set some things in context. I can't say everything every week. But the ultimate end, Solomon has been warning, the ultimate end of foolishness is death, the grave or what he calls Sheol. And we've been arguing that Proverbs is more than just sort of morality for this life. It's more than, hey, if you want to live a good life, walk in wisdom. If you want to die an early death, walk in foolishness. There's, there's some of that, right? I mean, the Proverbs 1 warned that to run quickly to violence is to set your own trap. You might end up dying early if you live a life of violence. But this, this death, life, Sheol, it, it seems to be saying something more than just, uh, you know, this life. It seems to be pointing to something beyond the grave. It seems to be pointing to eternal life or eternal death. The wise inherit eternal life. The fool inherits eternal death. And the New Testament actually affirms this, and we saw this last week, when it warns us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that's, he's saying, some of you used to walk, your life was characterized by sin, but now that is not who you are, your identity is in Christ, you've been washed, 
we just sang about it. Jesus paid it all. We're washed by His sacrificial work on the cross. You've been sanctified, set apart as holy to God, and you've been justified. You've been declared completely righteous in the sight of God, not based on your own good works, but based on the righteousness of Christ and His work. And that work is then applied to you by the Spirit of God. And such were some of you. And so that's where we ended last week. That the greatest need that we all have is not, as as we think about Proverbs, as we think about sexual sin, not just to clean ourselves up a little bit, but the greatest need we all have is to be washed by the Spirit of God, made alive by the Spirit of God, credited with the very righteousness of Christ. Every stain washed away because we're credited with Christ's perfect record. That's our greatest need. So, If we can sum up last week, in light of the work of Christ, in light of the consequences of sin, both physical, we saw some of those, right? The adulterer, like, you know, he makes an angry husband out of the woman that he cheated with, right? So there are these physical things that we were warned against, but also these spiritual consequences, death, separation from God, that was last week, right? But The biblical pattern for change is not just saying stop, right? Stop to elicit fantasies, thoughts, desires, behavior, but putting on righteous behavior and desires. The biblical pattern for change is put off and put on. And that's the counsel that's given to us in Proverbs chapter 5. I think we read the whole chapter last week, but I think you could sum up the section we're looking at this morning, 5, 15 through 23, we'll read the whole text here in a moment. But look at 18b. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That sort of sums up the put on. Fighting sexual immorality with wisdom, put on. Right? Well, what do we put on? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. We've been learning in Proverbs that life works best when we walk consistent with the way that God has designed you to function in His creation, right? So we were designed to glorify God. We were designed to walk consistent with His created order. And when we stray from His created order, we actually complicate life, right? The illustration I like to use is, you know, a lawnmower works great when you mow the lawn and cut your grass, Right, but you hang that bad boy up in the ceiling and use it as a ceiling fan, it's not going to go well for you. Right? And so what Proverbs 5 does, it sort of takes this general principle and applies it to the area of purity and holiness. The reality is, we've said this before, but God has not designed sex for mature people or simply in love people or committed people or consenting people, but for married people, right? The design is one man and one woman to bind themselves together in the covenant of marriage. And in this covenant, the husband and wife are one physically. We aren't surprised then that the put on is to enjoy sexual intimacy in the fullness of its proper context. So you might sum up the wisdom of Proverbs for married people this way. Put on the enjoyment of sexual relations in the context of marriage. 
In other words, the best defense is a strong offense, right? Let's read Proverbs chapter 5, the, the end there, verse 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked man ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. So you can hear even in the words of Proverbs that the Bible doesn't discourage physical intimacy in the least, right? It just, it just sort of puts it in its proper context, which is the sacred covenant between husband and wife. Now, historically, the, the, the Catholic Church sort of looked down on sexual love even among married couples, Right? Leland Reichen kind of summarized the, the view sort of leading into the Reformation this way. He said, The dominant attitude of the Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil. It did not cease to be so if its object were one's wife. So even, even before the Middle Ages, though, right, so, some of the church fathers, even guys that we would res respect and appreciate much of their theology, a guy like Augustine said this, the sexual relationship is innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is sinful. So even Augustine sort of encouraged married couples to abstain. So following, so sort of in the Middle Ages, sort of leading up to the Reformation, the church had sort of declared so many holy days that married couples were to abstain that it filled up over half the year in the calendar, like 180 days where married couples were supposed to abstain from physical intimacy with one another. Now, I was listening to a sermon by Kent Hughes, and he said to that, no wonder there was a Reformation. <laughs> you might be surprised that it was actually the Puritans, right? What comes to mind when you think of the Puritans? Yeah, no Christmas, that's true. And if you apply that same logic to other areas of life, you might be surprised that it's the Puritans that were championing, championing the enjoyment of the physical union to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. They have sort of a reputation for being prudish, but they argued for returning to the biblical view of sex and marriage, particularly what we just read in Proverbs chapter 5. Right? One Puritan said this about Genesis 2.24. They shall be one flesh. He said that was included in the Bible to justify and make legitimate the rights of the marriage bed. Right? The Puritans spoke often of what they called matrimonial duty. Right? If you're reading the Puritans and you think, oh, well, they never address these hearts. No, they just use words that maybe we're not used to. Matrimonial duty, act of matrimony, do benevolence. Well, what are those words talking about? They're talking about God's good design for married couples to enjoy one another in that sacred context. 
And so what we read in Proverbs chapter 5 is the tasteful but clear metaphors that God gives us in His Word. Drink water from your own cistern. She is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Be intoxicated always in her love. Married couples are called to rejoice then in the wife of their youth. So we might, we might apply it this way. If you're married, be puritanical, right? In the historically accurate sense, be puritanical. Or better, we might say be apostolic. Be apostolic, right? And I don't mean be an apostle. I mean follow Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6 or 7. When he's talking about how a husband and wife should relate to each other, you know what Paul's prohibition was? What his do not do this was? Do not abstain, right? He makes a little exception, like if you really want to, you can abstain for fasting and prayer. But he says that a husband and wife in 1 Corinthians 7 should be committed to one another, directed towards one another, both selflessly giving of themselves to each other, both giving up their own rights, their own demands, their own autonomy, because now they are one flesh. And so what's true in Scripture is that this, this intimacy of any sort breaks down when selfish ambition invades one or more of the couples in marriage, right? When one or both spouses is only focused on self, there will be disunity, division, and it will destroy intimacy within a marriage. So we can remember this morning, those of us who are married, that physical intimacy is actually the overflow of uh, companionship. Right, a, a son shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is the overflow of the uniting of your life with another person. It's to cultivate a loving intimacy that goes beyond just physical touch. So, and there's, there's these things that, like even in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, like, get in the way, right? Uh, you know, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. That's not just for married couples, but it's good counsel for married couples because what Paul says is when you let the sun go down in your wrath, bitterness sneaks in and you leave a door open and Satan sneaks in there and he loves to just divide when that door is left open. So I think what Proverbs chapter 5 is calling us to do is to enjoy one another to the max, to find satisfaction in your spouse. Now, the Bible then doesn't make the following assumption that we might be tempted to make, which is this. If you are single, then there's no hope of you walking in righteousness and honoring God with your body. It would be easy to go there, right? When you look at Proverbs chapter 5, what's one of the ways we fight sexual sin? Well, delight in the wife of your youth. Well, I don't have a wife, so I guess there's no hope for me to fight this sin. That's just not, that's just not true. We'll see that in a moment. The question is, what if I'm not married and I'm struggling with sexual sin and temptation? Well, first I would encourage you, don't equivocate on God's good plan for marriage as the proper context for sexual activity, right? Don't buy the world's wisdom. The world, I think, they make two grave errors. 
They say sex is everything, and they say sex is nothing. Right? They say sex is everything. That, that if I can't fulfill every desire, every feeling, this is my identity. So anybody who kind of gets in the way of that, they're not only wrong, but they hate me because they don't want me to be satisfied. Right? That's what the world says. But on the other hand, they say it's nothing. Right? Who cares? Sleep with whoever you want. It's just an innocent activity. There's no feelings involved, no consequences, no heartaches. Right? It's, it's, it's everything. If you're in the way of my desire, whether it's whatever that sexual desire is, if you're in the way of that, you're, you hate me and you're a bigot, or it's nothing like, who cares, no big deal, it's meaningless. Buying into that will leave you empty, unfulfilled, disenfranchised. So I'm saying, if you're single this morning, don't buy into this lie that, well, it's nothing or, or it's so important that I can't be happy without it. Right? So we might say, don't dim- diminish the role a spouse plays. If you're single and you want to get married and the Lord brings somebody in your path and they love the Lord too, get married. Right? There's no sense in sort of delaying marriage for years and years and years. But also recognize that marriage is not this magic bullet that takes away all temptation and sin. In the end, marriage is not the be-all, end-all. I think what Proverbs 5 helps us see is it's, it's a help along the way for those who are married. But ultimately, look there at chapter 5, verse 21. Ultimately, we don't live in relation to a spouse. We live in relation to the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. So point number two this morning is your spouse can help, but only Christ can deliver. Right? A spouse can help, but only Christ can deliver. And thank you, Rusty, for clarifying that you weren't going rogue on the Scripture reading. We are going to be in Ephesians 5 here in a minute if you want to turn there, but The final argument at the end of Proverbs that Solomon lays out before his son is that you live live primarily before the Lord, not before others, right? His his primary counsel is not don't be an adulterer because, you know, you'll make a husband mad, you'll lose honor and dignity. Those are like sort of prodding you down the path a little bit. His main rationale is you live life before God. God. In fact, notice the question that precedes verse 21 and verse 20. Sorry, I told you to turn to Ephesians, but in Proverbs 5, 20, he says, why should you be intoxicated, my son? So he asks, why should you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman? Why, should, why would you do that? Well, you shouldn't, he says in verse 21, because or for you live life before God. There is no hiding a secret life from him. He sees all paths. He sees all life. He scrutinizes every path, the text says. And one on this path, he warns in verses 22 and 23, will taste the bitterness of sin. Look there in verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So instead of this 
rapturous, if you are here last week, this, this rapturous love promised through the enticing words of the forbidden woman instead of liberation and freedom and delight. Verse 22 says, you end up ensnared and trapped. You know, I'm reminded of, of Edmund in Chronicles of, of Narnia who sneaks away because he so desires that Turkish delight that the wicked witch had, had fed him. And he goes to his own doom. He goes to an, his own imprisonment because of Turkish delight. You know, one commentator referred to adultery, and I, and I, and I think we've sort of uh, found that it, it's fair to expand the application to sexual sin in general. He referred to it as walking death. Walking death. And that's the end that's stated in verse 23. He dies. He dies for lack of discipline. He has rejected the path of life and wisdom, and, and, and this, this path not only robs a person of of the enjoyment of life, the fullness of life that we've seen in Proverbs 5 and 6, but it robs a a person of eternal life. So the father says to his young son then, don't embrace the adulterer, right? Don't embrace the adulterer. Instead, embrace a different woman, right? If you're married, yeah, your wife is helpful, but one more fundamental than that, Embrace Lady Wisdom, right? Embrace Lady Wisdom. Remember back in chapter 4, this is what Solomon said. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Right? Married or single, what's the goal? Embrace wisdom. Love her. Do not let go of her. She can truly protect you. She keeps you from from even starting down this path of folly. Remember, that's what we talked about last week. Don't even take the first step. Proverbs 7, verses 4 and 5. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Right? Remember, we talked about the, the, the danger of thinking so highly of yourself that you can put yourself in these really tempting situations, and I'm so strong that I can handle it. Right? Well, what Lady Wisdom equips us to do is to, to be humble, to be real about our own hearts, and to say, I can't even start down this path because I will end up destroying myself. Right? No, nobody really, we've said this a bunch, but nobody really sets out to like, they don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think today I'll just blow up my whole life up. Instead, it's typically just a series of smaller steps down the path of folly, and one day you find, like Proverbs chapter 5, I'm entrapped, I'm ensnared. You know, I read a quote this week that said, you know, those who, those who fall, uh, you know, he's, he was actually talking about pastors, they don't fall very far, he said. So it's these, these series of steps down the path of folly. So Lady Wisdom keeps you from assuming you are stronger than you are. 
Listen to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. So again, we see the danger there. To be proud is to set yourself up for danger. You can't, you know, the, what do we say? Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, you can't fear God and be proud at the same time. Lady wisdom also keeps you from coveting what is not yours. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 29. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So it keeps you from coveting what's not yours. Your neighbor's wife. Right? Wisdom teaches us that true life eternal life, even true joy, is not found in sort of reaching out for what God has not been pleased to give us. Instead, we'll see in a moment from Ephesians chapter 5, it's being thankful for what the Lord actually has given us. And ultimately, we've learned in Proverbs that Lady Wisdom teaches you to guard your heart. To guard your heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Above all, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Also, Proverbs 7, verses 2 and 3. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your hearts. So we're reminded from Proverbs chapter 4, remember, guard your heart. The idea was that our hearts want to stray, so we guard what's, what comes in through our eyes, through our ears, because what, what we intake affects our heart, and our heart then drives our lives. And so then in chapter 7, he says, write the word on your heart, right? We've been arguing that the wisdom that comes from the Father to the Son is the the wisdom of God's word. So God sees, He hears, He knows our hearts, He cares about our thoughts, desires, affections, and will. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. So we guard our hearts, Remembering Proverbs chapter 5, that we live life before God, not initially or primarily before man. A man's ways are before the Lord. He scrutinizes everyone's paths. Right? We mentioned Joseph last week. What was his main concern when he's being pulled away by Potiphar's wife? He didn't say, well, can we get away with it? He said, how can I do this thing against God? How can I do this thing against God? And he ran, right? He ran out and put himself actually in a predicament because he's willing to please God. So a spouse can help, but lady wisdom is the only one who can truly deliver you. Now let's talk about that, right? Remember that, that lady wisdom in Proverbs is a character that, that represents the wisdom of God. It's a wonderful picture of the beauty and the glory of God's wisdom. We've said before that God possesses all wisdom. If we have any wisdom whatsoever, it's it's sort of because we, we glean it from Him. So we've even said it this way, that God, not only does God possess all wisdom, but we said God is His attributes. 
He is his, he's not like just made up of a bunch of different little parts. 10% wisdom, 10% love, 10%. He is full wisdom. And so we're not surprised then that when Christ comes to this earth and he displays the glory of God as, as the incarnated son of God, he displays the nature of God and he displays the wisdom of God. In fact, the New Testament calls him the wisdom of God. And Paul says in Colossians that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. So I'm going from like God to Christ to try to make this point. Embracing wisdom is not just trying to learn a few tips to learn a few tricks. Right? We hear a lot about life hacks. You know, you might watch Instagram, find life hacks. God is not a life hack. Right? Do this, your life gets better. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because to know anything of wisdom, you, you must know God. You must come before Him, admit your helpless state. We sung about it this morning. There's nothing in my hands that I bring that should earn me grace. I'm admitting my helpless state. I'm relying on Him for grace to cover every sin and to empower me to walk worthy in wisdom and righteousness. Only then are we in a position to appropriate wisdom into our lives. So ultimately, God is wisdom, and to walk in wisdom is is to know Him and experience His work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and so that I might be conformed and shaped to His character and will. All right, so now we can go to Ephesians chapter 5. Give you a second to turn there. The context is that in chapter 4, Paul said that when Christ saved us, he transformed us. I mean, if you could just sum up like what happened to you. When he saved us, he transformed us. And the language he uses to make that point is you've put off the old man and you've put on the new man, and the Spirit has begun the process in, in you of conforming you to the image of Christ. He begins renewing your mind according to the Word of God. And then you get to chapter 5, and he says, Now, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Look there in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul admonishes us, God admonishes us through his word to be imitators of God. And what does that mean? Well, it's to live a life, Paul says, to be char- that is characterized by love. Love of God and love of others. Right? Not just any sort of love. We don't, we don't get the right to sort of define love on our own terms. We don't get to adopt the world's view of love. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. It's the type of love that's exemplified by Christ himself who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, the text says, as, a, as an appropriate sacrifice to God. So the work of Christ becomes not, not only the reason we can be imitators of God, right? There's no hope for us before we come to God through Christ, 
but the love of Christ actually becomes the, the example of how we are to love. So we come as, as God's beloved children. Well, how did I become a beloved child? It's through Christ, who also loved us. So we come as those who are loved by God because Christ loved us, and therefore we are to imitate the, the God who is love. God the Father is love, and the Son here is love. Christ demonstrating that love. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He willingly offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. So the pain, the ridicule, the shame that Christ endured all display the love of Christ. And it's, it's the love that his children are meant, that, that God the Father's children through Christ are meant to imitate. That sort of self-sacrificial, costly love. So love is giving, it is sacrifice, it's enduring for the sake of another. And so the reason I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5 is because he, he then goes, so what's the opposite of that sort of love? What's the opposite of loving the way that Christ has loved us? Well, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Sexual sin is inherently unloving. It's the opposite of loving the way that Christ has loved. It's to seek self-gratification. It's diametrically opposed to what Christ has done for us on the cross. In fact, Paul says there in verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. So sexual sin is, is fundamentally unloving, and the believer should not even be joking, engaging in those sort of jokes, filthy, coarse, dirty jokes, they lose their savor when we want to walk in love and so glorify God because we recognize that the very thing that we want to laugh at is anti-love, which is anti-God, right? So instead of this coarse joking, filthy talk, what's found on the believer's lips by God's grace? Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. Right? So covetousness is, is wanting what God has not given you. Thanksgiving is thanking the Lord and being content with what He has indeed given you. And so Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 5 to keep sort of pressing into why believers should avoid sexual immorality. One, those who are characterized by sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember don't, don't read that, not in light of what we talked about in the beginning, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. doesn't mean if you have past sin, you are not inheriting the kingdom of God. It's those who refuse to repent, refuse to turn, refuse to trust in the finished work of Christ. Right. So why would we laugh at or, or engage in the very things that would exclude someone from the kingdom of God and for which the wrath of God is coming, he says there in verses 6 and 7. 
But for those who are united to Christ, those who are in Christ, he says, you're no longer darkness, but you are light. It's interesting. He doesn't say like light shone on you. He says you are light because you are in Christ. And so we might, might think about it this way. In light of your position as a beloved child, in light of the sacrificial love of Christ, in light of your move from being darkness to being light, right? Colossians might say it this way. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In light of that, in light of God's call to love others and give thanks, we ought to put off sexual immorality. In fact, what Paul calls it in verse 15 is wisdom. Right? Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Be careful how you live. Be sure to walk in wisdom. That sounds like Proverbs chapter 5 to me. You know, we were talking not too long ago in, in men's Bible study about growing in Christ. Right? And we were discussing, you know, there, there's some cases and there's some times where God just sort of changes your taste buds, you know, in a sense. I don't know if you You've like told somebody, man, you've got to watch this movie. It's so funny. And then you go back and you watch it and you're like, oh, that's, that's not as funny as I thought it was. It's actually sort of like what Ephesians 5 says I should not be. Right? When I was unsaved, I was watching this Life of Brian, Monty Python, Life of Brian. You know, and I thought it was funny. And then I got saved and I'm like, man, that is like mocking Christ. This is a straight blasphemy. Right? So sometimes God just changes your taste buds. I can't actually watch that movie and find it funny anymore because it's mocking the very foundation of my faith, the cross of, of Christ. So sometimes change happens that way, right? Maybe it's music. Some of you haven't, you, you, were, you, you didn't really have to work that hard to like put away sinful things like uh, in some areas, right? God just sort of changed your taste buds a little bit. Sometimes change happens that way. But not all change happens that way, right? Sometimes we have to fight tooth and nail. Sometimes we have to do battle with what Paul calls the lusts of the flesh. We have to fight to please God, wrestle with the desires of the flesh. And so maybe we can just end this way. Well, why would I want to do that? When change is hard, when change costs me something, why would I want to do that? Well, Proverbs and Ephesians chapter 5 help us. We want to do that so we might become like Christ. We do it so we might become like Christ, so that we might be imitators of God. We want to love God and love others well, and that means actually putting to death sexual immorality. We want to do that well because Jesus gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own, Paul says elsewhere. So glorify God with your body. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for your word. It's clear, and we are thankful for it. Thank you for Christ, who rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of light. Lord, may we walk in righteousness and holiness, those who know you. May you open eyes to see the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.